to the Technicast, the Arts and Humanities Research Podcast. Thank you to our wonderful contributors over the summer, to Joe Dukes and to the Beyond Human Connection conference team for their lovely pieces. And welcome as well to a new academic year. With a new year comes a new theme. And for the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about genre. And by happy coincidence, in the very week that Frodo left the Shire on his quest across Middle-earth, we're going to talk first about fantasy. But our guest this week is looking at stuff a little bit closer to home. It's my pleasure to introduce Jennifer Doveton, who is going into her second year of a PhD at Brunel University and is looking at representations of the middle class in fantasy. In her presentation now, she's going to take us through some very interesting features of the film adaptations of Harry Potter and television adaptation of His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. So grab your knife that can cut through dimensions, and I'll see you on the other side. Have you ever noticed that studies of class usually focus on the lives of the working classes? That studies of class in media focus on representations of the working classes? Reality TV, soaps, social realist film. I'm Jennifer Doveton. I'm a researcher in film and television. And I think it's time we shifted our focus to the middle classes and how they construct themselves. I'm going to do that by looking at a genre that has been allowed to dodge a proper class analysis. Fantasy. In my project, most of my case studies could be called Portal Quest Fantasies, a story in which the fantastical is entered or escaped to through a portal or opening. Portal Quest fantasy narratives are shaped by this threshold, by the excursion away from and perhaps ultimate return to the status quo, normality, the real world. The threshold also represents a milestone in the protagonist's development and growth, a threshold that perhaps only they can cross. The Chronicles of Narnia are one of the most famous examples of this genre, but more recent phenomena include the Harry Potter franchise and Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Recently, I've been seeing parallels in the symbolic economy of class expressed through aesthetics, language, rhetoric, and the ideas of the excursion into the fantastic. We hear a lot about social mobility lately. We're all encouraged to buy into the myth of meritocracy, aspiration culture, the idea that aspiration out of poverty, precarity or working-classness and into middle-classness is a personal quest everyone should take up. This rhetoric makes class hierarchies look like a story of individual failures and successes, rather than systemic or structural. Sociologist Bev Skeggs in Class Self-Culture from 2004 points out how the middle classes guarantee mobility for themselves through fixing the other. Mobility, the ability to move freely through physical, social, cultural and economic space, becomes a key component of middle class identity. But how else is middle class identity signified? 
Pierre Bourdieu's model of capitals identifies currencies of exchange alongside the economic, which, in combination, signal one's class status and moral value. Cultural capital, in particular, can be made up of individual aesthetic choices. Legitimate taste communicates cultural knowledge through ownership of the right possessions. As Bev Skeggs points out, All tastes, to Bourdieu, distinguish between practices and objects that do or do not function within the remit of moral personhood. Nowhere is this more pointed than in discourse around people's homes. Let's look at the homes of two of the characters from my case studies and determine what they tell us about their class status and their mobility. The BBC HBO adaptation of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials is a portal quest fantasy in which the two main protagonists, a modern Adam and Eve, find themselves able to travel through openings at will. Will Parry is the secondary protagonist, first seen in episode 5, season 1. Unlike Lyra, the first character we meet in an alternate historical Oxford, he lives in what we recognise as our world in Britain. But it's not the same Britain described in the literary version. In Pullman's book, The Subtle Knife, Will, a young carer to his mentally ill single mum, exists on a backdrop of the ordinary, constructed through markers of working-classness, isolation and social exclusion. Here's a quote from chapter one of The Subtle Knife. The close where Will and his mother lived was a loop of road in a modern estate with a dozen identical houses, of which theirs was by far the shabbiest. The front garden was just a patch of weedy grass. His mother had planted some shrubs earlier in the year, but they'd shriveled and died for lack of watering. Here's more from that chapter. Ordinary modern house. Housing estate. Pullman's imagery jars with the aesthetics of the series, in which Will and his mother live in a designer, Scandinavian-inspired, mid-century home. Every room is wood and glass, with accents of exposed, brutalist concrete. Lighting is natural, or soft lamplight. Carefully chosen objet d'art, books, prints, plants, are the only possessions that litter the shelves. Nothing plastic, nothing cheap, nothing garish or out of place. It looks like a show home. It looks like an interior design magazine has just finished shooting their latest editorial. This house, in real life, is in Cardiff and it was designed by Thomas Glyn Jones and John R. Evans in the 1960s. But this isn't real life. It doesn't matter how much this house costs, how many awards it won for design, or how likely it is that any individual could own and maintain such a home. What matters is what this change contributes or takes away from the narrative and from character. What are the consequences of this change? In the series, the city suburb which Will, a solitary figure, moves through, 
retained the muted, painterly colour palette of the main protagonist Lyra's Oxford. Like in the location shots of a period drama, the graffiti, takeaways, traffic and advertising of modern-day Britain do not appear. Things that are in the book, such as a Burger King, a cinema, the busy roads of Will's town, are cropped out of view. What is unseen, cropped out, forms the underbelly of this polished and subdued aesthetic. Disgust exists just off-screen, at the alternate literary incarnation of Will, whose home doesn't line up with bourgeois tastes. Sociologist Stephanie Lawler has a lot to say about how superior middle-class tastes and practices are shaped through expressions of disgust. The issue here is not simply about middle-class people looking down on working-class people. Such understandings work to produce working-class people as abhorrent and as foundationally other to a middle-class existence that is silently marked as normal and desirable. They also work to produce middle-classed identities that rely on not being the repellent and disgusting other. The bourgeoisie are shaped by their distance from and disgust at the masses and mass culture. So how can they derive symbolic value from a house which is identical to a dozen others? The tastefully designed and decorated Parry House sits entirely alone at the end of the street. In the Harry Potter films, we see a marked example of identical houses on Privet Drive. Each time this setting appears, usually at the beginning of the films, it looks more suffocatingly homogenous. Harry resides very uncomfortably in this tasteless suburb before he is able to pass through his portal. The Dursley home is crowded with gaudy faux antiquary, shiny textured wallpaper, gilt frames and dark over-lacquered wood. The high-key lighting draws stark attention to the illegitimacy of the interior design and offers little in the way of romantic ambiance or warmth. 36, counted them myself. 36, but last year, last year I had 37! Uh, yes, well, well, some of them are quite a bit bigger than last year. I don't care how big they are! No, 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 this is what we're going to do, is that when we go out, we're going to buy you two new presents. How's that, pumpkin? The cruelty Harry is subjected to seems to go hand in hand with the excesses and pretense of the Dursley family, desperately trying but inevitably failing to suppress nature itself and, from their perspective, the intrusion of the uncanny or the unhomely into their tightly regulated hypernormative existence. The sterile, pathologically over-manicured lawns, the leaded windows... The muggles of Privet Drive are trying too hard to play the game of bourgeois taste. And this act of inauthenticity has grave implications for their moral standing. Stephanie Lawler cites Bourdieu when she points out that pretensions provoke calls to order. Pretentious is a charge levelled at people in whom what they seem to be is not considered to be what they are in whom there is a gap between being and seeming. We, the audience, can see this gap as we see through the character's inauthenticity. Who does she think she is? Indeed, 
Who does Petunia Dursley think she is? <laughs> Would you not be my perfect sister, being who she was? Oh, my mother and father were so proud of the day she got her letter. The home can reflect the interior life of a character, but in Harry Potter, the disgust for this home and its inhabitants is visible on screen and juxtaposed against other more fitting dwellings like the medieval castle boarding school Hogwarts or the chaotic but down-to-earth Weasley Cottage. Harry resides in Privet Drive for many years, all while retaining his own moral and aesthetic competencies, which are, of course, innate. Taste, knowledge and other forms of cultural competency are coded as something innate, something one is rather than something one has. Stephanie Lawler. Harry is framed in opposition with the aesthetics of this space and its inhabitants. The experience of the spectator, our experience, is one of aesthetic and moral distance. Will's house is, conversely, a display of visual coherence. Its markers of good taste are so precisely chosen, according to middle-class cultural capital, as to transcend the material, becoming something innate. Tasteful possessions can also be marked as hardly possessions at all. Stephanie Lawler. In episode 7, there's a scene in which one of the main antagonists pushes his way into the Parry living room. We get the first and only verbal confirmation that the Parry house is aesthetically pleasing. What a pleasant room. It's strange. Some houses you walk into, and you know they're not happy places. Other houses, it could be a smell or something indescribable. But you know, a happy family lives inside. You know nothing about this family. While Will is not at odds with his home or its other inhabitants, this space is contradictory, melancholy and unsettled. The Parries are socially excluded, paranoid and bereft. When the borders of their home are intruded on, it is rendered unsafe and the family must flee. Will must escape. Both Harry and Will are explicitly destined to escape this real world and cross into the fantastic. You don't see, this world is broken. It takes extraordinary people to fix it. Extraordinary people like your dad, like you. Dear Mr Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Inevitably, what they escape from is any remnants of working-class life or the distasteful. As Bev Skeggs points out, This encodes working-classness not only as something that has to be left behind, that which is fixed in order for mobility to proceed, but also as that which has no value. Middle-class taste and positioning are the means by which working-classness can be overcome and eradicated, and as something to be aspired to. In his dark materials, we don't see much of the aesthetics of working-class life. 
The economy of the narrative is entirely focused on shaping Will's characterization as an individual, placing him alone in a tightly shot frame when outside the home and surrounded by legitimate middle-class articles of taste when inside the home. The choice to omit any visual references to the working-class city or the urban might have something to do with the choice to cast half-Sudanese Amir Wilson in the role. Much can be speculated about what this says about class and race, specifically working-classness and blackness. In Harry Potter, our hero's individuality and subjectivity is constructed through juxtaposition. Privet Drive is everything he is not. In both cases, what grants these characters the mobility to develop and escape is their coding as middle class, their cultural competence, their innate affinity with legitimate middle class taste, or their distance from the tasteless. And judgments of taste ultimately stand in for moral judgments. Thank you to Jennifer for that thought-provoking piece. I'm sure many of us, myself included, remember those books very fondly, and it's very interesting now to look back on them in, in different ways. So we're going to have a deeper dive now with the discussion. And among the things to be considered are individualism, being the chosen one, and of course, Marxist puppets. Now you may hear evidence of a little bit of delay to some of the reactions, and that is because my internet was struggling with a big storm roaring overhead very ominously as we had our discussion. Rumours later emerged that it was Lord Voldemort kicking off at the price of a Freddo down the corner shop, but it is as yet unconfirmed. Hello, Jennifer. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good stuff. Yeah, I'm good. Good, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us and for your yeah wonderful piece. I think as someone who was a was an avid reader when I was a teenager, it was definitely um, some nostalgia and a bit of an eye opener at the same time. Oh, really? Okay. But I'll I'll come on to that later. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but certainly in I'm researching something I in you know I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Has it changed the way that you? I don't know if you were a big reader before, but has it changed the way that you look at those kind of cultural things that you consume? I think I've always looked at things like that, but now I feel that I'm kind of empowered in my way of analysing things, um, in that I, I'm allowed to write about it, I'm being told to write about it and think about things in that way, in in a non-defensive way, because I definitely grew up being very critical of media and things I was reading and wanted to discuss it, I guess it was just the way I was raised. We would like mute the adverts and just talk about what we just watched. But 
in the age of social media, I got a lot of pushback on that from people I knew, like locally. Like when Facebook first came out, I put up like a few blogs about films I'd seen about how I thought they were sexist and stuff and then I had all these like local lads being like no they're not stop reading into it it's just a film and that made me feel really like defeated and like there was something wrong with me and I didn't really understand why no one agreed with me but then obviously over time I have found a lot of people who do agree <laughs> that you should scrutinize the media you're consuming absolutely uh, it's so interesting um, you said about the adverts because I have got to a point where I can't watch TV adverts anymore. Oh yeah! Like I just I can't do it. It feels so weird now. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty painful. Why do you think that middle class values, uh, as you said, had kind of avoided being scrutinised in the same way as depictions of the working class, and equally the same with fantasy? Why has that not? been so uh, so covered okay so for the middle classes this has puzzled me as well and I feel like I want to draw a parallel with whiteness because there's a few theorists who have said how come we aren't analyzing like what constitutes whiteness how how whiteness is used symbolically in media and and systems of value and things like that and people have responded negatively to the idea of sort of cataloguing whiteness or or putting bounds around it because they think that some people will actually become empowered like white supremacists will become empowered through that idea but I don't really agree because there's so much power in being like the unmarked neutral and I think the only way to remove that power is to study exactly how these systems of value are shifting all the time and the things that they're like pinning themselves to. Sarah Ahmed talks a lot about that to do with whiteness and how we should name whiteness and Richard Dyer also has a book called White which talks about the backlash to like trying to talk about whiteness so I think that middle classness is kind of in a similar area in which that it benefits from being unseen it benefits from being this neutral thing that everyone is meant to aspire to like these are just the natural good things that we should all aspire to and obviously some people can't aspire to those things because a lot of them are inherent qualities and fantasy that's i mean that's slightly different in that we have this these systems of genre and they they are allotted different cultural value so there's things like i was talking about this the other day with someone how reality tv is very devalued it's seen as kind of trashy and cheap maybe because of the people who it depicts but also because of the way it's kind of lowest common denominator trying to get a quite big swathe of the market but fantasy is is a kind of special case because some people will dismiss it as anti-leftist and apolitical and escapist but that has also really benefited fantasy because it means it's a thing that people feel that they can safely retreat into without someone questioning what their tastes mean and and why they've made the decision it's like it's like it's a holiday everyone's allowed a holiday but I don't think fantasy is like that and I think that's led it off the hook of a lot of scrutiny it's very interesting that kind of in play, hidden in plain sight kind of stuff I mean you know personally reading was always an escape for me and I think it's not until you're older that you realize how those characters and those narratives can affect your your viewpoints and your yeah idea of your own social standing etc yeah, I think uh, uh, on an emotional level when you're a child, 
I thought some of the things that are in these books didn't really exist. I thought they were something magical. Like, I've never lived in a house and I've always Ah. kind of romanticised the idea of living in a house because all the people in the books I grew up with either lived in a house or ended up in a house at the end or they were in a haunted house and the houses felt very loaded with memory and value and something a little bit melancholy but also it was kind of a reward that characters get gifted a house at the end of the film or at the end of the book and I've never been gifted a house and (laughs) no one in my generation that I know is going to be gifted a house it's very difficult now to have a house so it's interesting how that might change or yeah wanted to ask you about that especially when you consider the cost of living crisis and and in general how you know how much more difficult it is to buy a house these days Mm. yeah many cases we don't even think about it being a possibility anymore so what is the significance of having that house or or even just a very firmly established home in these texts in terms of middle class identity well i'm not a literary theorist or anything like that but i know that the home is very important to a lot of different genres it's important to fantasy it's important to the like ideas of the uncanny and the ideas of the domestic are, are so important so of course people are going to keep writing about characters that live in houses and i think in some way the the idea of the home and the house is going to become it is going to become a bit fantastical because we can't actually have them in real life yeah. it's going to become this thing from a bygone era um that is caught up with a lot of this value and something a little bit magical i think and is there an element in your research tool that's come up in this kind of vein to do with nostalgia and how you know life was simpler we always hear simpler times don't Mm, we yeah maybe that that idea of home feeds into to something similar to that yeah because a lot of fantasy is is about accessing a lost era through portals or just through the ideas of the characters like through the ideas of the child this innocence and things like that yeah of course fantasy is all wrapped up in that it's so complicated though and there's so much history to go through in terms of fantasy and i haven't finished going (laughs) through it i can totally imagine there's been a lot um i'm not going to get into it there's been a lot of stuff obviously about the the new tolkien adaptation um, and the casting and that and stuff. And so, you know, it's still obviously... I can't wait to start watching it and having loads of ideas. Yeah, it's exciting, but also, you know, there's going to be this can of worms opened. You were talking about the economy of class and you said about aesthetics and language and rhetoric. And I just wondered if you could give a couple of everyday examples of how that is that is portrayed in very common terms uh, today. I guess in real life, because... You know, it's clearly something that that bleeds into the way that society is constructed and projected and stuff. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I go on TikTok and there's a lot of different waves of feminism and different waves of anti-racism and things like that happening on TikTok all the time because there are a lot of young people learning about, just learning about this stuff now. And there's a lot of older people from older generations that are having to learn as well. And I'm seeing there's kind of anti-makeup movements coming back, which is interesting. And there's natural hair movements, which have always been growing, you know. Um, and it, I started to think about sort of corporate standards for things like dress and hair and, and makeup and things like that and how they are so deeply classed. And, of course, 
they're rooted in like racial politics as well so a lot of the ideals that someone will tell you when you're going to a job interview or something like that are to present yourself as middle class so pronouncing things and structuring your sentences in a sort of institutional style with received pronunciation and dressing in a way that makes you look like you don't need the money and talking in a way that makes it seem like you don't need the money and all these different things um, which aren't necessarily rooted in your economic situation. Everyone is expected to do them. Everyone is expected to aspire to this same ideal. And I'm noticing a lot of it is related to, like, don't wear too much makeup. Don't, especially with women, don't look too feminine. Don't dress up too much because that's become associated with aspirational working class behaviour. It's become associated with working class culture. And middle class women think that they have the monopoly on natural beauty and we're all meant to be aspiring to that middle class idea of natural beauty. Natural beauty doesn't exist. There's no such thing as natural beauty. <laughs> it's all culturally determined. It's all it's all a social construct. What we think is beautiful and what we think isn't beautiful. There are some natural attributes of people that which we culturally don't consider to be beautiful and that we reject, which is awful. Um, so saying that you love natural beauty is most of the time saying that you like how white middle class women look. So that's one example. It's quite a complex example, but but I think one that we can we can all relate to because whenever you you're preparing for a job interview, you sort of feel this pressure that you have to do it in exactly a particular way, don't you? And it's kind of mad if you you turned up and you said I'm not wearing a suit because I reject you know the the rooted ideals of the class system you're not gonna get the gig are you <laughs> yeah but there'll be some people who could turn up in their their everyday clothes and because those clothes yes. communicate a different kind of value they would be all right and other people who you know you can spend more money on a tracksuit these days than a suit but you couldn't really turn up in a tracksuit to a job interview so there's different types of value not just how much things actually cost on paper there was a I can't remember the fashion designer released the baby clothes this summer and it was they were just plain white and they just had a tiny logo somewhere and they were oh, yeah. thousands of pounds this is a, a, a thing that's happening now and I see it so much on this if you scroll on TikTok all day <laughs> like I do you <laughs> see a lot of these yummy mummies who are stripping all the color out of their houses and ah. and their children aren't allowed to wear any colors only beige um and this was started by middle class women of course who wanted to show that they had access to like natural fabrics and expensive natural fibres and things like that. And they wanted to reject the showiness of working class people. But it's cyclical because, of course, the only reason working class people were told to be showy and dress their kids up is because they were like, oh, before they couldn't afford dyed yeah. fabrics and things like that. There was a time where, where that those natural fabrics were associated with being poor and now it's completely flipped, but it's going to flip again because working class women are going to start dressing their kids in beige fabrics to say, well, this is what you said was valuable. This is what you said was subdued and, and respectful. And now you're taking the piss out of me for doing it. So it's just going to keep going round and round. Yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And on that note, if it's possible to simply define it, what is taste and how does it become legitimised? This is an idea from Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote about taste and class and sort of separated class into its different 
components, which is really a really useful way of looking at it, um, because it's not just about how much money you have. It's not about how many assets you have. That is just one part. The problem is with that, if you want to guard, if, if you're in a position where you're, you're invested in guarding your social status, you don't want people who win the lottery to be able to come in and have as much privilege as you have. So you need other markers. You need to you need markers that obviously ultimately come from inherited wealth and wealth and things like that. Good education gives you a good cultural knowledge. If you have a good cultural knowledge, you know what which pieces of art to put up in your house, what galleries to go to and things like that. So that's where he came up with as the economic capital, cultural capital, which is things like art and clothes and things like that. And then social capital, which is the networks you have and who you know. And those all kind of combine in, into a symbolic economy, so symbolic capital. And it, it, it's a bit like a three-keyed access. You have to turn all the keys to be able to get access. You can't just have one of these things because you will be exposed as, well, you know, the nouveau riche, like in that scene in Titanic or something. Like, oh, she has money, but she doesn't have taste. It's, like you said, it's just such a powerful, in, in that situation, if you don't have that, those cultural keys it doesn't matter how much money you have or yeah you, you can't get in and and so I wanted to ask you about this this idea of disgust mm. and why that is so powerful but on the on the flip side also in terms of like you were saying with the the manicured lawns and and then with these you know uh, the yummy mummies and the and the kind of the color palettes yeah why is sterility also so powerful why is that kind of lack of yeah, difference also powerful. Well, I think they're quite different things in a way because the way I see uh, Privet Drive in Harry Potter is it's meant to be seen, yeah, as this very sterile, removed from the natural world. And it, early 20th century and mid 20th century, I guess also the, the late 19th century, there was this emergence of the bourgeoisie and they had to separate themselves from... Uh, the working classes in a way that could not be taken away from them so it has to be something naturalistic and deeply rooted in in intrinsic qualities and I think the thing they did is link themselves to nature to say they were the true inheritors of the rural and things like that because the city was becoming filled up with workers so they couldn't have the city anymore. I was reading this book by John Carey it's a bit it's from the 90s but it's called The Intellectuals and the Masses and it's all about this sort of period in the early 20th century where this bourgeois intellectual class really tried to distance themselves from the working classes and the, the petty bourgeois by disparaging the suburban and they hated manicured lawns and things like that because their houses were actually in the countryside <laughs> and their houses are actually close to nature yeah. and the suburban was this disgusting pretense of trying to pretend that you're close to nature but really you're just a mid-level manager or something and you work in the city and it, you're not the true like chosen ones um, and I think that Privet Drive is definitely from that kind of tradition where they're not they don't even have a detached house it's like a link detached house or something um, it's a new build it's got those leaded windows that kind of suggest something older, but it's obviously new. Um, they're obsessed with how they come across, whereas if they were truly middle class, 
it would be effortless to come across as tasteful, but they're obsessed with it. They're always having to think about it. So that pretentiousness is one of the worst things that you can show because it shows that you are not truly what you want to be. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Yeah, and it's then funny that they are so disparaging of Harry just trying to be himself, right? Yeah, because his magic is this natural thing that just uh, emerges from him as a person and his family, and they don't like that, and that their fear of magic is... It's kind of a commentary on the fantasy genre and how it's evolved, because... There is a time when people talked about fantasy as this eruption of the uncanny, as disrupting bourgeois life. And we've kind of flipped the perspective on it, where now to be truly good, you have to embrace magic and love magic. And the people who are afraid of magic are the ignorant ones kind of being left behind and who can't pass through the portal because they're not connected to nature. Just everything in that first film is like Harry can talk to a snake and the others are scared of the snake and are banging on the glass and Harry is unkempt and a bit wild and a bit messy and they're all obsessively neat and he's kept his middle-class accent, he's kept the way he talks, he's kept the way that he thinks and he hasn't been even slightly polluted by them. You also mentioned about um, the homogeneity of Privet Drive and how all those things look the same. And and I guess Mm. for me, one of the most obvious images of middle classness are those American suburbs with the, you know, the the white picket fence is what we always say, right? Then there's this sense of, like you were saying um, with Will, that there's a social exclusion as a marker of working classness. So the homogeneity means that as long as everyone is on the same page we can kind of keep this the way it is and it's being other that's the that is then made the problem is can can you elaborate a bit more on that for me yeah it's kind of complicated but then when you start seeing the way these things are constantly in battle with each other it becomes a bit clearer and individualism is like the key to it all we are encouraged to aspire to a kind of individualism and the more individualistic you can be um, the more value you have but of course being socially excluded is a kind of individualism I feel that in the adaptation of his dark materials the BBC one that's quite recent they are so afraid of the aesthetics of social exclusion that they refuse to show any of it and we can see that he's socially excluded that's part of his narrative it's very obvious he's got no friends and his mum is mentally ill and he's having to care for her all these things that mean that he's separated from his peer group and his mum has no one they don't have a community yet they live in this immaculate house and I'm not saying that if you're working class or if you're mentally ill if you're socially excluded you can't have a nice tidy house but to me it's so different from the book and it's not really remarked upon properly to me it's a way of saying look They may be socially excluded, but at least they don't own any plastic cups, right? At least it still looks good, okay? (laughs) So they're good people. They're not just wasting their money on Poundland hat, you know? They've got expensive vases, so they're actually valuable. I just feel like that's really awful that they did that. And the more I think about it, the more awful it feels. And I I kind of want to reach in and just, like, ask the people who the set why did you do this and I don't think they could actually be honest with themselves with how they did it because it's so wrapped up I think in class and in race because they they go okay we're going to cast Will as a 
mixed race boy rather than a white boy. And that means we have to be extra careful about how we make make sure he's valuable because they clearly don't think that blackness is valuable. So I feel like I had to up the middle classness to kind of counteract it. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what it seems like to me. That those two are kind of intrinsically linked, the casting and the decisions about the house. Maybe, yeah, because I just feel like they didn't want to have him too associated with the urban. I think that's what it is. And they think already that blackness is so associated with the urban. And they were like, oh, but there's so much in the book about how he lives in a city and there's a Burger King in the book and there's a cinema and there's shops and it's very urban. So they're like, let's take all of that out. And almost all the characters in that section are black. And it's really great that they've cast these black actors and I think they work perfectly in the role. But why then did you have to strip out all of the sort of urban cultural context from that? You know, it's suspect. <laughs> you can still have a lonely person walking past a, a Chinese takeaway full of people, right? So why do you think they have stripped all of that out? I think maybe they think their viewer is a middle-class white person. They definitely think that they must be middle-class or they think that they're making something for a middle-class audience who has to empathise with this person and the way that they build up empathy is by saying this person is middle class too. And middle classness is so wrapped up with the idea of the moral and the respectable. They think, well, if we made this character too working class, people aren't going to identify with him. They're going to, yeah. people, there's already so much rhetoric around blaming poor people for being poor, blaming people on benefits for being on benefits. And a lot of people who are poor and on benefits do have mental health issues and are disabled and have all these other things that contribute to poverty and vulnerability and they wanted to take certain parts of the vulnerability to build sympathy but then they didn't want to take other parts because the other parts bring in victim blaming because we're in such a victim blaming individualistic culture and for you does it obviously novels are open to interpretation does it fundamentally change the narrative of the story or you know will as a main main character i haven't finished watching i haven't watched series two because i was waiting until i developed my analytical framework so i ha i'm not wasting it if you know what i mean but i'm gonna get started on that very soon but i think it probably does yeah i don't know because i'm trying to step outside of myself and i'm thinking oh i read the books and i related to will yeah and now i watch that and i don't relate to will because i feel i there's nothing to cling on to there he's just a person that they've stripped away any relatable like qualities to me but other people might be able to relate to him more or it might be that because it's fantasy they were worried about muddying the water with any kind of social realism that shift would genre shift too much when you sent me the video of the house, I found it almost quite it was quite haunting. Really, it was like watching a, you know, a Nordic noir uh, setup. Yeah, yeah. Which was very strange. Thinking about that, I said I used to read a lot for escapism. Often they're portal quests, and it is a escaping from a some sort of you know situation. Yeah. And will happens for the same thing. What's the significance of that desire to escape or ambition to escape, whether that be working classness or you know, a particular situation that these characters find themselves in. Because I feel like maybe escape is quite a key uh, theme in, in some of these works that you'd be looking at. I feel like the sort of individualistic narratives of escape are the 
kind of hegemonic discourse that we're all mm. living in right now because any time someone asks, well, what am I meant to do? The answers are always going to be, you need to individually work harder. You need to like scam the system. You need to just beat out the competition. You need to uh, tighten your belt. You need to do this. And this is going to be, I don't know if this rhetoric is going to survive the energy crisis, but it could get worse because the worse things get and the, the fewer opportunities there are for people, the more it becomes, well, that's because you didn't work hard enough and it becomes victim blaming. So the narratives we see all the time, we see these inspirational videos about how someone was like gifted the money to pay off their medical debt or their student loans or they worked their way up from nothing to be a CEO or they won the lottery and now they live in their dream home and we like these stories they kind of feel like they emerge from the culture and the culture is what the fuck are we going to do they emerge from these anxieties what are we going to do how are we going to pay our energy bills and i've got this theory about i have no idea how the energy economy <laughs> works just gonna <laughs> say that i don't understand why the bills have gone up that much it doesn't make any sense to me so i'm thinking how can a company do something that stupid when people can't pay it? How are people going to put up their prices that much when people can't pay it? Well, they've worked out that a certain amount of people will pay it and they will suffer, but they will pay it. And the rest, the government will have to pay. And they've worked out that we are so disconnected from each other and we have no sense of community or compassion for each other. So we will just go, how am I going to pay it? And we won't go, but how are we going to pay it? You won't ask how your neighbour's going to pay it or just say, well, I'll have to take on extra work. I'll have to cut corners, cut back on luxuries or whatever it is. And they've I think they've calculated the exact amount that a certain proportion of people are willing to cut back on luxuries and cut back on holidays and cut back on little tiny treats or a coffee or whatever. And they've gone, we'll have that. Or worked out how much people have in their savings account. Well, they've gone, we'll have that. Because people need to pay for energy. There's no getting away from it. Uh, that's just my weird little theory that it's this individualism that's contributed to that and the escape narratives are well you know what are we going to do we can't afford this get a better job get a better life become a better person that's it and i guess it's that thing where the alternative is to yeah have a knife that cuts you through to a parallel universe mm. or you know be a magical creature yeah <laughs> and the other half of that is thinking about all the other people that don't deserve to go through because you've earned it so it's the, it's kind of stroking your own ego thinking well we could have a system that works for everyone where everyone is fed and housed um, and has heating and can cook and stuff but um, we could have a system where I'm special and I've been chosen and yeah I get all that stuff but other people who aren't as good as me don't get it and that's even better than everyone having it yeah <laughs> oh that's really cynical I know I don't I don't think that people are naturally like that I think we're just being fed that narrative over and over again that the best thing you can be is like one-of-a-kind special chosen child i was going to ask about novels but it might apply just to generally to wider life i think it's become more and more difficult to not be cynical about culture and mm. media and stuff i mean do you find that a, a a problem or an issue with your research but then also the kind of what you want to do in your free time yeah, because as I said before, there's a knee-jerk response to fantasy in that it's not worth studying, these questions aren't worth asking, 
and that you should just enjoy them. They're just it's just for entertainment, and I think that's a really dangerous mm. idea because that means that you are turning off your critical faculties when you're watching that stuff. And I think people don't want to turn off their critical faculties. I think naturally people are critical. But the idea that you can use this to relax and this is escapism and then you get presented with only one type of fantasy, I think is not sustainable. And we can see that in the way that people have been given permission to kind of play with fantasy, to role play, to do, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and fan fiction and gaming and stuff like that actively encourages you to say, well, if you don't like the way this story goes, change it. Uh, and I think that's more a more natural approach to the way we engage with narrative. Yeah, I agree. And and are, are there any particular books, series, games, TV shows that you would recommend because <laughs> they are perhaps I don't know what the right word would be, but you know they're they're better. They they don't quite um, carry these same problems. Oh my god! Or is everything in some way you know? inevitably affected by it the thing that comes to mind is the dark crystal i mean i i watch everything i watch all different genres i really like sci-fi um so i kind of don't want to write about sci-fi because i really like it yeah. <laughs> um more than fantasy so sci-fi is more of the thing i'm protecting and keeping safe and fantasy is the thing i'm going to rip to shreds but <laughs> i've got more into fantasy since i've started doing this and and watching things that I didn't think I'd like. And The Dark Crystal was one of those things. There was a series on, I was like, oh, puppets. I don't know. I don't know if I like puppets. And it's the kind of people that like it. I don't. I, it doesn't sound like it would be something I'd like. like it looks a bit creepy. Uh, <laughs> but I watched it and I'm like, this is a Marxist text, you know? The people are alienated from the means of production. There's this alien race that's come down and they're basically the capitalist. They've come down and they convinced everyone who is native to the planet that they need them and they need to work for them. And the only reason they have the life they have is because of the capitalists who who are literally parasites sucking the energy out of like the crystal. Wow. <laughs> and it's it's a Marxist text. And they cancelled it. They cancelled the series on Netflix. I'm oh, so angry. Really? But um, the series is so beautiful and good and of course the casting has some class i was looking for class the whole time i was like hmm, why did they choose that actor for that character and it's the baddies have this do have some of them have this kind of new york working class almost a bit jewishy accent which i'm like hmm right that's a bit questionable yeah. um so there's definitely things to critique in there but i would say the the structure of the narrative and the power structure that it, it critiques is quite leftist really and so what are the the next steps for you for your for your research i'm gonna start my analysis so i'm gonna start watching all the films and the tv shows like carefully pausing and making notes and i'm really interested in there's so much on harry potter especially there's the the kind of studio tour um there's all the games which i hope i don't have to play but <laughs> there's the fan fiction there's there's endless documentaries and if you started off with a film where you thought it was kind of subtle with the class coding and you were like hmm this gives me a bad feeling um the amount that has been written it's become explicit so that if you go to the studio tour they were explicitly 
disparage the decor of Privet Drive in some of the descriptions. Very interesting. Whereas in the film, it's just implied. <laughs> they kind of incriminate themselves because the more people you have working on it and the more people you have writing about it, um, you can't have any subtlety. There's no subtext anymore. There's no subtext for Harry Potter anymore because there's so much that's been written. It's all been put out into broad daylight. This is how we're meant to feel about it. This this is the story. This is the system of value. So I'm interested in looking at that stuff. You know, obviously it was written by now a, a little while ago, but do you think that's been affected by the issues, press issues, should we say, surrounding J.K. Rowling, whether that's added scrutiny to people's evaluations of Harry Potter? Yeah, I wonder, because I, I am looking for... in contemporary writing about it if I went on the studio tour now I went a couple of years ago just to see and I'm wondering whether they've tried to put in more elements of social justice because we know that JK Rowling has tried to kind of rewrite Hermione and say oh she could have been black and things like that to try and seem like she was a little bit more socially liberal than she is but most of the things I'm seeing are people who are the biggest fans have really turned on Harry Potter, which is really good because they know the most about it and they know what they like about it and they know what could have been good about it and that means they'll go on to write their own things or rewrite Harry Potter and there's probably the people that work at the studio tour and the people that work on the games. I don't think they should have made that game. I think they should maybe read another book and (laughs) make Mm. a new game, (laughs) but at least they're doing something transformational with it and it's going to kind of completely rip it open and say, hang on, what was the purpose of that? What was the purpose of that? Why is that in there? But then on the other hand, it's also going to reproduce a lot of the stereotypes and deeply embed them into our culture. And I feel like it was such a derivative, you know, I'm not here to critique her writing really, but it's such a derivative text in that it borrows almost exclusively from other texts and tropes and things like that, yep. that it's very strange to see all these tropes being like rehashed over and over again and made synonymous with Britishness and British tourism and stuff. Because, I mean, it must bring in a lot of a lot of tourists. Yeah, the other day they had something at King's Cross, some back to Hogwarts party there, and, oh, God. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. There's a lot to think about, especially the next time that we all pick up pick up a book or uh, tuning into the new Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones series or whatever (laughs) it may be so yeah thank you for joining us and good luck with the the next stage of the research thank you thanks once again to Jennifer for such an engaging conversation and for offering us plenty to think about the next time we dive into a story as ever if you have an idea for an episode or would like to get more involved please do drop us an email at technicaster at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at Technicast. Next time we'll be digging around trying to find out a bit more about what constitutes genre and what exists at those blurred boundaries in between. But for now, have a lovely week and I'll speak to you soon.